0: Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering four conversations from episode 57, our wrap up of AASLD 2021. This conversation starts with my icebreaker question What was the one thing in AASLD 21 that, in the words of Stephen Harrison, put the biggest fattest dent in fatty liver disease? After all the panelists' answer, Stephen outlines a path to bridge through joint biopsy MRE results to a non biopsy future, while Manal Abdel-Malik talks about how graphic the shortcomings of biopsy are when every quantitative steatosis measure and non-invasive test in the Alpine 2-3 results pointed to a successful trial and a single semi-quantitative fibrosis read for a dosing level doomed the study. One clear theme of AASLD 2021 was that the emergence of vast quantities of data supporting NITs as better drug performance metrics can advance the field dramatically. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion group. My icebreaker question is actually a bit of a tribute to Stephen, except the one to Manal, which is actually a tribute to Manal. There are two really compelling talks I had in my life that got me involved in fatty liver disease. And Manal was the second, as she knows. Stephen was the first. And one of the things that Stephen said during his was that his mission in doing all this was, and I'm quoting now, to put a big fat dent in fatty liver disease. So the question I want to ask the rest of you, and Manal, I'm going to ask you this too, but as part of a broader question or a different question, is, and Stephen's here.
1: Hey, I'm here. Sorry, guys. Just had some clinical things going on.
0: Stephen, your timing is off by a minute and a half. Here's today's icebreaker. I was saying that I got involved in NASH in the first place as much as anything else because of a conversation I had with you and one with Manal. And for the icebreaker, when we first talked you, told me your mission was to put a big fat dent in fatty liver disease. I want everybody, except Manal, who will tell us that in the context of a broader question. Where do you think the biggest dent got hit on fatty liver disease this week? Brave one, go first.
2: Louise Campbell. I actually
3: think it's probably the genomics sessions, although I didn't cover any of those. There were quite a few interesting things from what I could see looking at. phenotyping the people who aren't going to respond to some of the drugs, different diets, things like that. And I think the more we drive down into that precision medicine, the more we get into areas that could really change the landscape. Did these drugs fail? Or if we looked at some of those studies that failed with new techniques that we've got, could we pick out the patients? And therefore, were the drugs more successful in the patients from the right phenotypes? That would be the sort of thing that I took from this meeting that I haven't
0: seen previously. It's a great answer, Louise. Thanks. Okay, now whoever goes next can't repeat that.
2: Jörn Schattenberg.
3: Right, right, I'll go next. So for me, the big dent came, it really comes in from the fact that we're talking with different physicians beyond hepatologists to how to identify these patients, to make a difference for these patients, to actually find these patients. So I'll, I'll no approved therapy as available today yet. We're discussing these strategies, how to identify them in different settings, in different healthcare systems. And this is a big step step towards the realization that the disease is important, it's real, it's it's critical for patients. There was a special prize given to Dana Cryer for her advocacy. This is really the momentum that we've reached more people than just the experts with this critical disease.
0: Thanks, Johan. We're reserving an offer list, so Ian and Stephen, go ahead. Ian
1: Rowe. Well, I'm going to go next and really to follow on from what Johan said, and, and that is that I, I thought that this was a meeting that was a bit about research, but a lot of it was about practice and about how we might implement treatments that are not drug treatments now for the benefit of patients. So there was a real focus that came through the meeting on diet and exercise interventions. That's to the benefit of you know our patients today. It reflects a wider recognition that we need to do something now, and we can't afford to
0: wait for drugs that will be coming down the line. Okay, thanks Ian. That's great. Stephen? Stephen Harrison.
1: As I reflected on the meeting and reflected on, first of all, all the great talks that that were given, and many of those by you guys. And by the way, before I go on, I'll say great job, Manal, on your wrap-up. I thought that was very well done. And trying to go through his 475 different posters and whittle down what was the important, most important thing to drive home was very, very challenging. So congratulations on that and your two children for their help. But I think for me, the big fat dent really... I I see the tide turning on some of our non-invasive tests. And in 2022, we will have some significant data that will hopefully support the initial data that's come out on some of these NITs, particularly as it pertains to the context of use of diagnosing the at-risk NASH patient and monitoring efficacy of drug. Still think we got a ways to go on outcomes, which ultimately is the holy grail, but the groundwork has been laid for us to mine that data. And we'll hear that in 2022. And I believe that groundswell has begun at AASLD 2021. There's a lot of things I could say that left a dent to me that, in my mind, was the biggest dent.
0: Thank you, Stephen. So I'm going to steal about half of Louise's and half of yours. And I'm going to say that the big dent that I felt was an increasing acceptance of the complexity of the disease. You know, I I talk about this from time to time, but in 1969, Nixon declared war on cancer as if there was a single thing called cancer. And and one of the things that struck me in NASH Tech 2019 when I first came here was the degree to which people were talking about as if there was a thing called NASH. And what these discussions have been about in a whole bunch of directions is, A, understanding far more richly what the disease is, and then how it might differ from patient to patient and how to understand that and how to treat it. All that richness, Stephen, has the effect of walking us away from biopsy because biopsy is a really blunt instrument and away from looking for one drug that's the holy grail because, A, that hasn't worked for us so far, but, B, the more we know about the disease, the more we know that that's probably not the right thing to do. So I just thought the whole thing got a lot richer.
1: Just one caveat. Biopsy is actually a very sharp instrument, but the results are very blunt.
0: <laughs> Can we call it a sharp instrument and a blunt analytical tool? Will that cover the landscape? Very good, Stephen. So now I have two questions for you. The first one is, and I'm not the only one who's asked this, how many med school uh, acceptances did your kids get last night, and how many came with scholarships?
2: We haven't applied yet, um, and I don't know. We'll hope the scholarships will come in later. In Division
0: one <laughs> athletics, a 14-year-old kid with talent can get a scholarship offer simply based on that, and I think if there's such a thing in med school, your, your kids certainly put themselves right at the front of the pack last night.
2: Manal abdel Malik. It wasn't a hard task. It was highlight every time you see NAFLD, NASH, steatohepatitis, or fatty liver, and then give me those abstracts.
1: The, the real question, though, is Manal, could they pronounce steatohepatitis?
2: Uh, we worked on that. Thank <laughs> you could after the <laughs> they eventually did.
0: Okay, so here's the second question, and this is my version of Big Dent for you. Without quite putting it that way, the process of getting the 475 articles highlighted by your kids process into that 30-minute talk, to some degree, has to be about the question, where was the dent, right? It's what matters. But some of what matters is how much do I have to get in, and part of some of what matters is, okay, what mattered most? So how did you address that?
2: Well, you know, as, as I was going through those abstracts, particularly as it pertained to the therapeutic landscape. And I commend Stephen and everyone else who really took the podium on many, many different fronts in that regard, particularly with early phase 2A and 2B trials. What really put a dent in it for me and, and how I framed the talk the way I did is looking at the early phase trials that show early evidence of efficacy was somewhat surreal for me when I got to pivotal studies that ultimately failed I chose and it was a very hard decision for me to make to present the top line data for the alpine trial falcon 1 and 2 the tandem study because for all practical purposes you know the proof of concept the early phase trials the mechanistic principles behind these compounds we should have seen a signal we should have seen some outcome results and it was somewhat surreal that they failed on the primary outcome of how we've defined this disease, a histologic definition, but yet so many other surrogate markers of disease activity dropped across all these trials that, quote, failed. I put that front and center, because I think it framed the rest of my talk, which was really to put into context that this meeting was so robust, and I hope all the regulatory agencies were listening, and brought Forward the non invasive approaches to not only diagnosing, but really risk stratifying and more importantly, defining outcomes and whether those platforms are going to be AI based platforms for better interpretation of histology. And it was really amazing to see. I can't recall the first author, might have been Moises, who for which the light microscopy was deemed to be unchanged, but AI platforms and pathology was able to stratify that unchanged sector into a progressor or a non-progressor. The pathologist was really good and concordant with AI platforms when there was clear progression or regression, but every time they called it no change, their AI picked up subtleties that weren't otherwise seen. And now we have non-invasive markers that are leading us towards removal of the biopsy altogether to predicting a clinically meaningful outcome, whether that be cardiovascular or hepatocellular carcinoma or decompensation or death even. And we need to move ourselves. Away from, as as Stephen's- so sharply said, you know, the sharp endpoint, which is so blunt and nondescript. And as I was entangled in all of these abstracts, I wanted to deliver a message. Look how far we've come, but look how much we are failing. And we need to reframe our approach. We need to rethink about how we're defining our endpoints. We need to look outside and beyond the biopsy to more sensitive surrogates to define such endpoints, or we're going to potentially set ourselves up for more failures unless we learn from past history and capitalize on the very robust platforms, technologies, and innovative science that we saw brought forward here when it came to genomics, proteomics, and modeling approaches to optimizing the area under the receiver-operator curve for performance of imaging coupled with score or surrogate biomarkers as predictors of outcomes.
0: Now, what's interesting is that Stephen made a similar. Or kind of comment last night, except I don't think it presupposed a solution. We stopped the way you said it last night, right? We're getting we're getting to the precipice. Something has to give. I hope it's the biopsy. Can any of you see a realistic scenario under which it isn't the biopsy that gives, That that the, the scenario under which that maintains primacy for another few years, leaves us basically struggling as we've been? Or do you think at this point it's virtually preordained, even if you can't tell the path, that that's where it's going to go?
3: You know, the point that Manal raised is is at the heart of, of drug development in our field here. We need something to have an accelerated approval to avoid avoid having a drug and patients on on trial for five or six years to measure those outpoints. And we've discussed this numerous times on the podcast, and I think Manel highlighted it with her NASH debrief here, that albeit there is effects that we can measure that are biological, plausible, and pathophysiologically relevant to the patient, we're not meeting the barrier the regulators have set to get a drug approved. Now, what would be the best solution? I think we're struggling with that, but we're seeing good advances. And that's what Stephen mentioned with his comment on... On really improvement in NITs and combinations of these. So I think it's a dialogue. And something I was going to say that I also noticed at this meeting is that the regulators were right there, and there's a number of these think tanks where both Frank and Ania or Laura Dimmick also showed up and, and talked and discussed. So I think this is really getting us all together and finding a solution for the best of our patients.
1: The simplest way, whether or not this is feasible or not, I don't know. The simplest way to get to an NIT would be to capitalize on the work already done by many with MR elastography. So just follow my logic. If we know that a one-stage improvement in fibrosis is linked to improvement in outcome, as recently published in Hepatology, off work that Arun Sanyal was the first author on and presented at last year's meeting of AASLD, if we know that, and we also know that MRE is linked to outcomes, as was presented at this meeting in a late breaker, as was published by Lena Allen and Maza Naridin already in two different separate independent cohorts. Now we have three cohorts showing this association. It seems like all we're missing is what magnitude of effect change from MRE is linked to a one stage improvement in fibrosis. And we have the data today to answer that question. That comes from one of the phase three trials that's underway right now, where MRE is tagged tagged to biopsy at baseline and will be tagged to biopsy at the end of treatment. A, if the premise is that the drug is effective on fibrosis and you're able to show one stage improvement, what does that number need to be for MRE? And when you've got a thousand patients where that's done in prospectively, that's pretty powerful data that could be presented to the regulatory authorities to say this change is linked to a one-stage improvement in fibrosis and therefore should count as a surrogate just like fibrosis improvement of one stage does. Now, that to me would account for reaching a surrogate approvable endpoint. You would still want to follow those patients long-term, but can't that be done now with MR elastography rather than biopsy?
2: You're assuming that the biopsy is the gold standard. Then, because we've already seen that there's some poor even agreement on at times what a one stage improvement in fibrosis is across different reviewers. So it gets to the point of validating a surrogate marker against histology when histology, in and of itself, is a poor surrogate. And I've struggled with this rationale. So if you're validating something that's better than a poor surrogate, then you're only making it poor as opposed to using it as a standalone, independent predictor of an outcome.
1: Some and all that'll come. that will come with time. I'm just thinking in the short term, how do we bridge that
2: to be acceptable? We would need to do it where we have consensus, probably against artificial platforms for interpretation of the histology for which we have more optimal sensitivity in fibrosis measures and use that by which to validate the MR. That's
1: a good point. We actually have that data now from histoindex. 16.94% improvement in collagen links to a one-stage improvement on an ordinal semi-quantitative scale. That's unpublished data, but that's data that's actually out in the domain and can be spoken about. You know, if you wanted to go that way, again, I think at the end of the day, what we need to do is as this groundswell builds about the variability that exists with biopsy and concomitantly and in parallel, the groundswell is building for some of these NITs is that it's time. And we've talked about this through the liver forum. We talked about it through the NASH SIG. We've talked about it through summit. We've talked about it through other consortium about bringing to, we talked about it in NASHTAG and we will have a fireside chat with the regulators, with key opinion leaders, with industry representatives at NASHTAG, where the whole idea about this is to show the data with NITs, show the issue with histopathology, ordinal scale, semi-quantitative interpretation, and then see if we can reach a common ground on what it takes to achieve replacement of histology with an NIT for you know, conditional approval because I think we've got the outcome piece in the works. It's just that initial piece that we need a little bit more data on. I get asked all the time, "Well, what what percent change in MRE is linked to improvement?" And we can speak to 15 percent worsening in MRE is linked to worsening of disease, just like we can with scan. and we can with ELF, and we can with Pro C three. But we don't really have that magnitude of effect change yet. And the problem is. Not enough sponsors are doing NITs in Phase 2B linked to histology. We just don't have that data set. And then when we look to phase threes, we didn't get it with Regenerate. We didn't get it with Resolve-It. We didn't get it with Aurora. We're kind of now falling back to Madrigal and the Maestro Nash trial to say, give me what you got. You got a thousand patients with MRE and ELF and Pro-C3 and a combination of these that are paired to histology. And if the drug actually meets its endpoint, now we can begin to do some of these post-hoc analyses and add fuel to the fire to go to the regulators and say, okay, we got it. Now let's at least accept it as a surrogate. We'll still need to do the long-term outcome measure. We reduce the variability of what these endpoints are right now that are potentially inadvertently killing drug development, as you mentioned last night with Aldaferman I mean, we all think that drug works, but you know, we get, we get one read with one milligram. It's the way that statistical analysis was done with MCP mod statistics. You had to look for a dose-response relationship in fibrosis. It wasn't there, so the study was killed.
2: And now, back to Roger.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, November 24th, with our next episode in which we review recent cirrhosis studies and reconsider their possible role on the NIT pathway as we discussed throughout this meeting. If you want to join the live audience Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern time, email live that's S-U-R-F-L-I-V-E, at surfingnash.com with a request, and I will send back a link to serve as your admission ticket. Hope you'll join us either live or on the podcast. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.